I think now sticking with the topic, we're still in the retirement fund industry and we're trying to improve outcomes and that's really what Ruresh is, 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 is talking about. But one of the key sticky things, and I'm also a trustee on an umbrella fund and it's deciding on how to distribute uh, the death benefits and it can be quite a prickly issue and, and each, each case can be you know, very, very different. And I think a lot of trustees struggle with these things. So to help us with that, um, we've got Martin Rickett here, as well as Hetty Uber. Uh, Martin is head of product uh, head of product solutions at MMI Investments and Savings. He's also, as I understand it, a chair on some of the uh, retirement funds. So he's got quite a bit of experience as a trustee going through these uh, particular issues. And Hetty is a retirement fund governance leader at MMI Investments and Savings, also with a background in legal. So I think they've done quite an interesting, some interesting work around uh, death benefit distributions. So we really look forward to your presentation. I just want to, before they go on, remind you, you uh, can actually, there's a live polling system. You might have heard about the whole thing. You're probably wondering how it works. Martin and Hetty would like to use that. So if, has everybody got the app? If you've downloaded the app, you go into program, and then you go into the um, retirement fund death benefits, th this particular session, and at the top you'll see there's polls. There's like a little green uh, circle, and in the polls, the questions will come up. But I think as the speakers uh, ask the question, you can then vote, click on whatever answer is, and then submit. We'll then give you time, and then it will display on the uh, over here, and then we can talk about that. So can you please, if you do want to vote, and we do want your participation, please have a look at the app and make sure that you're at the right place. But I'll hand over to, to Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for the graveyard shift. Um, we really appreciate it. So if you were under the impression that you had full control over your retirement fund the day that you pass away, then you might unfortunately be in for a bit of an unpleasant surprise. So when I started to become involved in, 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 this, um, in these product lines and, and industry, it was very interesting to me that, that I do not have control necessarily of where my monies will be distributed to if I pass away. And hence why we did a bit of research on this, where we interviewed um, four of the largest umbrella funds in South Africa just to determine how the, the trustees actually apply their responsibility um, when they do come to death benefit distribution process. So what we will cover today um, is, first and foremost, Hetty um, will take you through a crash course recap on what the law actually requires trustees to do. Then we will actually go a little bit into what the industry actually do in practice. Finally, we want a bit of, a, of an interaction with the, with the audience. We will give you, sketch you a scenario um, inspired by very real cases um, and then actually ask you if you were a trustee what you actually would decide on how you actually want to distribute the, the death benefit proceeds and then just very high level discuss a bit of a potential framework that can potentially be used in the industry. So over to Haiti to cover the, what the law requires us to do. Hello, everyone. As you would expect, anything dealing with pension funds is in the Pension Funds Act. So let's look at what the law says. Section 37C is a section of the Pension Fund Act that deals with the distribution of death benefits. And what that section says is that a death benefit does not form part of the assets in the member's estate. 
What that means is that the member cannot decide what must happen with his benefit. He can't, for instance, in his will say, give everything to mommy. It has to be distributed in a particular way, and that particular way is set out in Section 37C. So what it says is that you have to look at certain people in a specific hierarchy. So firstly, you have to look at dependents. In a minute, I'll tell you exactly who qualify as dependents. And then if you do not have any dependents and you have nominated somebody that is not a dependent as a nominee, you can make payment to that nominee. If you have both, then the trustees have a discretion on how to distribute it between the dependents and the non-dependent nominees. It is extremely important to realize what nominees mean here. We're not referring to dependents where the member decided what the distribution should be between those dependents. This is if you do not have any dependents, nobody that falls in the definition of dependent, and you then decide that the money must go to somebody else. In those cases, the, the trustees do not have a discretion. They have to follow your nomination 100%. But they will only pay the benefit to the nominee if there is no deficit in the estate. So if you died because you were very lonely, the, you didn't have any dependents, and you also don't have anybody to nominate, then and only then the benefit will go to your estate. In the inf unfortunate event that you do not have an estate, you really, really were lonely, then the benefit will go to either the, uh, the Unclaimed Benefits Fund or to the Guardians Fund. Now, Guardians Fund is another word for big black hole because the moment it goes there, it's gone. This is why it's extremely important for members that do not have dependents to please, please just nominate somebody. If you don't have a name, I'll give you mine afterwards. <laughs> and then the Act says that trustees have 12 months within which to find dependents or nominees. It doesn't mean that they have to wait for 12 months before they make a decision. It just means that they have 12 months within which to find someone. If they do find dependents in the first month, and there's no doubt as to their real dependency, then obviously they can make payment immediately. Let's quickly look at what the law says about dependents. There are different categories, but the categories are not, not so important. It's just to make it easy for you to determine does somebody fall in the, uh, the uh, definition of dependent or not. The first one is quite clear. It's uh, sorry, the legal dependence. Now, a legal dependent is where the member has a legal obligation to maintain that specific person. So you'll find the usual culprits here. You expect to find the spouse here. You expect to find minor kids here because obviously the member has a responsibility to maintain those. Also, um, any adopted children. This is not stepchildren, this is an adopted children, a legal adoption, not a customary adoption, a legal adoption. If you have an illegitimate minor child, the only thing that needs to be proved is that this, this was, in fact, the member's child. Okay. The next category is the factual dependence. Now, here there is no legal obligation for the member to maintain these people, but he did so anyway. Um, but it will be a customary law spouse, common law spouse, a major child, for instance, where the major child is a student. Illegitimate child, if, they, if there is no maintenance order, then if the member in fact paid, not did he have to pay, the fact is, did he in fact pay. A stepchild, this is, this is close to my heart because I have one, it doesn't mean that if a child lives in your house, that child is necessarily your dependent. So I don't have a legal obligation to maintain my husband's child, 
But if I did so, so if that child lived in my house and I maintained that child like I do my, my, my own child, then that will also qualify as a dependent. Foster children, this is a very interesting one, because sometimes you can foster the child only over weekends. Does that now mean that that child is your dependent? What do you think? Quick show of hands, yes, no? No, it's not. Because it's not a regular maintenance that you pay. It's only over weekends, and you don't know whether you're going to do that for the rest of that child's life. So you have to, you have to establish some sort of permanency, not ad hoc payments. If you have a poor relative, and you look after this poor relative, not poor as an oxshain, but poor like an I don't have money, then that will also be, but once again, only if it's on a regular basis. So this is not if you buy them Christmas presents or every now and then you give them some of your old clothes. This is somebody that you really, really maintained. And then others, so others, who, who can qualify as others? This is not your maid. Remember, if you have uh, somebody that works in your house, that person is dependent on you, but for a salary, not for maintenance. There's a huge difference between the two. So I am not my employer's dependent. I'm his employee. You also get um, future legal dependents. Now, these are dependents that the member would have maintained had he not passed away. Unborn child, obviously. The child must be born within nine months after the member passed away. Otherwise, it's sort of impossible. <laughs> You'd be surprised. We, we have cases like that. Should go to the medical journals, but it never gets that far. Then also, fiancé, because you suppose that if the member didn't die, eventually he would have married this person. I'm talking about hymns. You realize that. Okay, so it's not important to know into which one of those three categories you fall as long as you fall in one of those three. So it doesn't mean that a legal dependent has a higher dependency than a factual dependent. You do around one, around one um, exercise to see whether somebody falls into the definition of dependent, and then in round two you will establish the, the extent of the dependency. So what do you look at to see whether somebody was the, uh, what the extent of dependency was. Now, the Act doesn't say what you have to do, but there are various guidelines that were given either by the pension funds adjudicator or in court cases. You look at the extent of the dependency. So what was the amount that the member, in fact, paid for this dependent? If, let's use an example, let's say there was a maintenance order for a fixed amount. The, ex the extent of the dependency is limited to that amount only. Only to that amount and only for the duration of that specific amount being payable. Then you look at the age of the, of the um, beneficiary. Obviously, if somebody is eight years old, he is more financially dependent than somebody that's 18 years old. Because if you, if you expect that the member would have looked after this child until age of majority, you actually, so I don't have to tell you, but there's a huge gap between eight and, 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 uh, eight and 18, and not so much between, let's say, 17 and 18. The relationship with the deceased, the closer the relationship, the higher the probability of dependency. Um, the amount available for distribution, it's ironic that the smaller the amount, the higher the number of dependency. It's just, it just works out like that. So if you have 5 million to distribute, you can take 20 people into account. If you have 10,000, maybe 18 of those 20 are going to fall away in round two. Then you look at the financial status of each of the beneficiaries and you look at the future earning capacity. So if you have a student that is in his final years of study, 
You can assume that he, if the dad didn't pass away, he would have paid for that child to finish his studies. So if you study, you expect that once you finish your studies, you'll be able to earn an income. So you're not going to look after that dependent for as long as you would somebody that has finished school and doesn't have a job. Because if you, if you never had a job and you are 25 years old, you're probably going to battle a bit to find a job without a degree or a, a, without a qualification. And then very, very last in this, in this queue, and there's a reason why it's lost, is the wishes of the deceased. So if that member did fill in a, what he thought was a beneficiary nomination, but it was actually only a list of his dependents with whatever percentage of the benefit he wanted them to have, you can look at that as a guideline. But it doesn't mean that the trustees can absolve themselves from any responsibility by saying, I'm just going to follow that wish list, because that's exactly what it is. It's a wish list. Okay, over to Martin. Thank you, Eti. So the next slide will um, just summarize what are the main differences that we've observed with the fourth largest umbrella funds in South Africa. And um, we're just going to focus on the differences because there were a couple of similarities, uh, but that's not the interesting part of, of our discussion. So basic principles, what are the umbrella funds or at least the board of trustees used in order to determine how money will be allocated? As you can see, provider one very much uses the, the PFA factors that Haiti just considered, where provider two and three takes a very actuarial approach, where they typically take life expectancy or present value of annuities into account. Provider 4 mainly uses road accident fund guidelines and the amounts prescribed in there um, in order to determine what amount should be allocated between the different ones. From a calculator perspective, three out of the four use a very pre-programmed calculator where the specific input that um, uh, is, is uh, required from the various uh, dependents and then it spits out a proposed allocation that will be used um, in the final decision, whereas provider one very much uses a manual template in order to, to determine the splits. Cut-off age of minors, this was also interesting that there were quite a big range in terms of the ages that were considered, um, although it more or less is around either finishing a secondary school or tertiary education. Interesting. Um, in terms of payment to minor, what rules are applied in terms of how the money is actually distributed. As you can see, most of them, do, where there's a legal guardian, then they do distribute it to the legal guardian itself. Um, whereas provider four almost um, always use beneficiary funds unless the, the, the legal guardian specifically require, requests um, for the money to not be distributed to a beneficiary fund. However, the interesting one that we specifically wanted to focus is how the industry actually treats nominations or the nominees that was discussed very lastly um, in, in, in Haiti's slides. And to some extent, this is probably the best indication of the wishes of a, of a specific member. Now, provider one and four takes a very reasonable approach where dependence um, are, takes preference and the financial dependency is, is sorted out first. And thereafter, the nominations of the of the um, that was submitted by the deceased was actually will be honored and actually distributed hence to the balance of the nominees. Provider two takes a similar approach, although in their um, final allocation after the financial needs have been, um, have been met, they then split the remaining amount, which I have to mention sometimes is very close to zero, if not zero. They split it equally between the dependents and the nominations. So yes, do taking the, the uh, wishes of the, of the deceased into account, but still considering the nominee and the dependent almost on an equal basis in terms of the final round of definition. Provider three almost exclusively looks after um, the financial needs, and they might even go as far as ignoring the nomination altogether if they feel that it's actually out, outdated or irrelevant. 
Now, just to illustrate a little bit how difficult the decision actually is in terms of the information that will be available to a, to a trustee, the next um, slide will sketch a bit of a scenario, and this is where we please need you to interact on the, on the, on the app. So I will, I will describe a potential scenario, and then I want you to play the role of a trustee and decide how you will actually distribute the death benefits in this specific scenario. So we have a member 52 who unfortunately has just passed away, and he earned a salary of about 25,000 rand a month. His current retirement benefit at death um, was a 3 million, and his total estate was roughly 3 million as well. Important information, he was, um, he was married to a wife aged 50 who is currently unemployed, and although they did not necessarily have a child together, there was a stepchild, which I should mention was legally adopted quite recently. There's also ex-wife involved, earning a salary of 20,000 rand, and there were no legal maintenance order um, in place for the wife. However, the two did have a child together, aged 10, and there's a legal maintenance of 1,000 rand per month, um, escalating at 5% over time. Additional information that is important, in the will of the deceased, he indicated that his uh, estate should be divided equally between his wife, his stepchild, and his child. So each roughly allo allocated one million. His nomination form allocated 100% to the ex-wife, although that was signed while the ex-wife and him were still married. And in his, oh, sorry, in his will, he indicated that 100% of his retirement benefits should actually be allocated to his wife. So most certainly a complex scenario, but as I've mentioned, very much inspired from real cases that we've actually seen in, the, uh, in, in practice. So the next question is to the U.S. trustees, how will you actually allocate these, this money if you were the trustee? Number one, will you allocate everything to the wife? Number two, will you honor the wishes on the nomination form and allocate everything to the ex-wife? Then three and four, the numbers are not necessarily important, but the main difference is will you allocate anything to the ex-wife? considering that she was on the nomination form. So hence three, only between um, everyone except the ex-wife, and number four, including the ex-wife. Please, will you allocate, the, allocate your vote on the app? And then can the technicians just show the results for us, please? <laughs> All right, quite interesting. So to indicate a little bit in terms of what the um, three of the four actually provided their response in terms of how their board of trustees would have hypothetically distributed the money, two of the three would have allocated everything to the wife, the current wife, hence option one, and I have to admit that that was not any information that I, that I shared with you, but they felt that the extent of the financial um, dependency actually was, the full three million was required in order to actually cater for the, for the dependency. The other provider in the industry did indeed choose number three, um, where there was some, uh, where the allocation was to everyone except the ex-wife. And hence, at this stage, no one would have allocated anything to the ex-wife, in spite of the fact that um, there was actually the nomination that is legally required to be considered was actually 100% um, to the ex-wife. All right, thank you. Can you go back to the slides for me, please? All right, so a framework that, I do, that we wanted to just propose for a discussion. I do not, do not think this is necessarily a final framework. But step one is to just determine the level of the, the list of dependents. So as Hetty has suggested, there's typically three categories. So identify all the various dependents in order and as well as the level of dependency um, for each of those dependents. 
Then the next two steps is just a very structured approach in terms of how we want to um, propose to allocate monies. First one, step two, allocating um, just based on basic financial needs. So in this round, we do not necessarily take the living standard of the specific uh, dependents into account. So to be fair, let's just allocate basic living standards um, allocations to the various dependents. And yet, typically, stats is a living, a living standard and numbers can be used as a basis to allocate those. Then number two, it might, be, might make sense to actually allocate um, uh, the secondary need, so a second round of allocation to the, to the dependents. And here you can maybe take into account the standard of living of the dependents and try to maintain that. I have to admit, in practice, very seldom step three cannot be achieved, simply because the member did not necessarily save enough to even allocate or solve for step two. But nonetheless, if there are no, um, funds left, then it might be useful to actually maintain the living standards of the, of the dependents. Finally, then we can actually con con um, uh, conclude to, uh, to allocate for luxury needs. And here, you can actually take additional needs into account. And at this stage, it makes sense to actually start including nominees because now you fulfilled your, your legal obligation at the very least from a trustee perspective to cover the financial needs in the first couple of steps. And here, you can take into account the, the wishes of the deceased um, that was taken in the form of the, um, of the nominations. All right. I do always think it is important to have a final sanity check almost, just to check, yo, does the results that actually came out of this process, does it make sense and is it reasonable and is it fair to, to all the, the various stakeholders? And ultimately, yeah, a form of discretion can potentially be um, applied. If you do take into account the nominations forms might have been outdated or circumstances might have significantly changed, although it is unlikely that you should ignore that, that information altogether. So in conclusion... Yes, the law does give some kind of a framework, and the PFA gives guidelines in terms of how actually the, the process should work, but the trustees still have to consider each and every case individually. Bear in mind that there is very little, if any, relationship between trustees and actually the members of a, trust, of a, of a retirement fund. So trustees are expected to follow a very onerous process, sometimes with very, very little information. And as you would have seen previously, the industry interpretation is already very, very different. Um, and ultimately, how the wishes of the deceased is taken into account is not necessarily applied consistently, which I think is actually a bit of a problem. We feel that a more clear framework will actually be useful in the process, but there will always have to be room for discretion um, to, uh, to be applied to cater for the specific needs of a specific scenario. And that's us. Thank you very much for your time. Martin Hetty, thank you so much. I think that was very useful. I'm supposed to go for trustee training in December, so luckily I don't need to. I can use the checklist. So, but I think it's very useful, actually. I mean, there's some really some practical things here. But what I'd like to do is maybe open it up for questions. I think we have about 15 minutes or so. Uh, questions on any of the two um, uh, presentations. I see we've got one at the back there. Uh, thank you for the presentation. Just one question on that cut of the age, 21, 23. I think that's wrong. You should check whether that, those children are still financially dependent on the parent.
Uh, I fully agree. So I think the, the intention of that was just almost a generic rule that they've applied. But at least from my perspective, in terms of where do we, do we deal with those cases, if some students do study beyond that age, maybe busy with a master's or a PhD, and it was dependent on the, on, the, on the deceased, then I agree it should actually be taken into account. Any other questions? Okay, we've got one, one at the front here. Thank you very much for a very interesting talk because I've spent the time comparing it with the Zimbabwean legislation which is very similar but one of the problems I found is you have being in Africa a large number of traditional spouses to deal with and some of them may be living outside of the country some of the children may be outside of the country, and you often end up with a large number of people claiming. You have the brother who's claiming because he's got to traditionally look after the spouse. And I think that, certainly for me, this adds a tremendous amount of complexity. And often I throw it back at the family to make the decisions. I don't know how this plays out in South Africa. No, I think that's actually good. I mean, I've got personal experience where we get information, you know, about the families and this one claiming, that one. And I think what we do, and I'll hand it over to Martin, and that they can maybe share some of their insights, but we do exactly that. We get affidavits to try and, and from all, various parties to then check what they are, what this person is saying is verified by what that person's saying. But ultimately, you need a lot more information. The process takes quite long. And there's a lot of more checking that you, you, you actually uh, need to do. And I think that's a bit unfortunate because uh, I think we've had some cases that maybe extend many, many months um, and then eventually go to you know, the adjudicator. And that is actually a, a factor. But maybe, Martin, Hetty, how do we you know, deal with those, those things? Sure. So, so I do think the fact-finding process is quite important, and it should be a rigorous process to ensure that you at least have access to all the important information before you make a decision. One of the similarities that we obviously have not spoken about today is what the process, many of the, or all the umbrella funds do apply, is once they've almost reached a draft decision, if I can call it that, then they do test, uh, test the results with the, with the relevant uh, dependents or who ultimately will be the beneficiaries of the proceeds. Just as a final check, did we take all information into account before a final, final decision is made? It very seldom is that new information comes as available at that point in time, but it's quite useful just to have that final check from the relatives before a final distribution actually is, is decided upon. Uh, Natasha. but are incompetent, for want of a better word. Not, not mentally disabled, where there's clearly a legal guardian, but there's a drug problem, there's an alcohol abuse problem, and you have to get the member's consent to, to go the beneficiary fund route. Um, yeah, just some thoughts and yeah, advice on those, those difficult cases. That one is unfortunately not an easy one to answer. 
because as you rightfully point out, you need the, the major's consent to pay the benefit into the beneficiary fund. But what we do is we pay it into the beneficiary fund and fight it out afterwards because we believe that trustees have responsibility to act in the best interest of the dependents. It's not only children, but sometimes it's the spouse. So what we often do is if a spouse is incompetent, he's either an alcoholic or a gambler, we will allocate more money to the, to the minor kids if they are, and then we will pay the minor kids' benefit into a beneficiary fund with only an income payable to, that, uh, to the legal guardian. You sort of get around it. So let's turn a little bit to, let's ask Varesh. Anybody got a question for Varesh in terms of the uh, Sanlam research? Varesh, I wanted to check the role of HR. I mean, in terms of, um, you mentioned that there's a, there's a lack of uh, awareness and mainly the understanding of the benefits in the member themselves. Your, your HR is basically the first point of, of contact for members. But uh, how, how, I mean, what, what's, what's the feeling around uh, the, the integration in, in, in terms of them understanding financial advising versus their role as a HR? Do, do you get a sense, even in financial servicing, uh, providing companies, do you still get the same outcome? I think that's a very good question, and it's a very relevant question. Uh, I've previously spoken at the South African Rewards Association, and this is where the HR, it's their conference, and it's uh, the, the REM benefits people are in there, and it was a sizable crowd as well, and presented on a similar issue, and but focus specifically on the role that HR has to play if we want more people to have better outcomes. And after the presentation, uh, a number of them came through to me and said that they acknowledge the role that they have to play because that's part of their job. Um, they also acknowledge that they are not licensed to give advice despite people coming through and asking for financial advice, and that's there. Um, and they don't have the ability to actually help they don't know how to help, but they, there's an appetite to do so. Um, so our view is, and as I've mentioned, is that the, the FinTech can assist with that. But you've got to look at other systematic areas where you can help people set themselves up for success. So for instance, um, in the induction process itself, instead of, which is a typical experience, you hand it a bunch of forms and you look at the guy next to you and say, well, what are you filling in? And you just copy what they've done. Uh, there's a different way of handling that induction process that helps people make better decisions. Uh, for instance, if, we were to, if you were to hire a new employee, what if in that acceptance form, um, there's, a, there's a little bit in there to say, well, will you bring your fund over to us as a new employer? So you use the HR, the existing HR processes with a little adjustment to help that individual move towards a better outcome. Lovely. I don't think you're off the hook. I saw Megan at the, at the back there. Hi, Varesh. Thanks for an interesting presentation. I'd like to focus on the administration cost versus value um, slide that you had up. I think a lot of trustees don't appreciate just how sticky admin is. Mm -hmm. And while we all want really great value, the last thing you want to do when you're, you've got an admin problem is to switch administrator because you're going to lock those problems in forever the former administrator will lose interest and possibly lose your data, possibly on purpose, and then you're never going to be able to solve that problem. So how do you deal with the fact that we need to be getting good value from administrators, but it's very, very difficult to obtain that in practice because it's so sticky? 
Look, uh, thank you, Megan. I think that's another very uh, pertinent question, especially given our current context, where, as you've mentioned, administration is very sticky, and it's almost it's the, the backbone, it's the chassis of retirement funding. Good administration helps an individual, helps an employer to move more people to those better outcomes. Um, to the specific issue of switching administrators while you're receiving bad service, there is no easy answer. There isn't an answer that's applicable across the board. What we have found in our experience, and I'm cognizant of not representing my employer uh, on, on this platform, but what we've previously done is to help that employer or that fund with the issues that they're currently facing by, for instance, taking over their front office work and helping to clean up the data prior to the administration back office and front office being transferred in its entire, entirety through to a Sunlum. Um, so that's an approach and it works in a specific context. The other issue is if you've got a problem, if you're receiving bad service, if you are legitimately dissatisfied with the experience that you have from your current administrator, you've got to look for alternatives. The answer is not to continue to have that problem, to continue to being dissatisfied because of the risk of switching. I think that for many of the, the large proper administrators, they will try and find a way to help you through that process. Thanks, Varish. Um, let's take two more questions. We've got one at the back. For Varish. Um, I just want to comment, you mentioned on the advice gap. Um, I give financial advice to individuals, so I, I can identify that's one of the major issues which I come across is people who effectively can't interpret or are unaware of what benefits they have. Um, and I think there's some, if I can say, culpability must lie at the foot of the, the, the retail pensions benefits industry um, for what appears, from my perspective, to have been a deliberate either negligence or an effort to disintermediate um, individuals from getting advice and to, to rather direct that um, via the, the EB or whatever kind of edifice. Of, of the company. Um, from a practical point of view, for a member to actually get the information or for an advisor to get information about someone's pension benefits is far more difficult um, than it is in the retail space. Mm -hmm. I think there's an informational gap which is actually not being facilitated via astute or some other mechanism. And then secondly, in terms of remunerating for advice, just anecdotally, I've had um, clients who have wanted to sort out their pension fund options, but they find such a lack of uh, capacity for individual advice via their employer that they'll come and pay me an additional fee over and above what they're paying in the scheme just because they're desperate to make a good decision. And that financial flow that should enable individual proper advice, I think is a mechanism which is just not in place in the industry. So again, uh, very good questions, and I have to agree with you on many of your points. Um, on the issue of the provision of information, uh, my understanding is that it is not currently or the, capa the, the capability to obtain one's holistic financial picture across EB providers isn't currently available. I do know of a couple of providers that are working on developing that capability, so hopefully in the coming year we do have access to that. Uh, but there are a number of providers, and this speaks to the value issue as well. If you're with an administrator, if you're with a provider, that lets you have access to your information at your fingertips. You're in a far better position 
to make better decisions with or without the financial advice. Obviously, you can make much better decisions with good financial advice. And again, it speaks to the dynamic of choosing the right provider because there is a difference between them and there are those where it is very difficult to access your own information or your own money. And then there are others where it is far, far easier to do so using technology like apps that have been developed and released recently. Um, sorry, your, your second question was? Sorry? On the individual financial advice. Again, I come back to it, that proper individual advice is, is seen as the gold standard. You've got a customized, tailored plan that makes sense for you, and hopefully in engaging with your advisor regularly and consistently, you're able to, it's like going to the gym and having a personal trainer, you stick to the plan and you see the benefits of your, your work through time. In the employer context, we find that, um, so one of the stats in the survey, we asked a question of, to, to, to the funds, uh, do you have a formalized strategy in place to provide financial advice through to your employees? And now this is in the region of 50 to 60% of respondents indicated, yes, we have a strategy in place. But when we dug in a bit deeper, we found that half of them actually had, the, well, the strategy to provide financial advice was merely being able to provide information on the fund. And that's not advice. So off the funds that we polled, only 30% had a formalized strategy to provide advice that actually included a form of advice. And even then, um, I think that typically advisors tend to focus on a segment of the market and not the, the broad uh, scope of what the employee set that is available. So it is, what, uh, I think what might be interesting is how Retirement Benefits Council is you know, coming to this. No, absolutely. But I think we need to um, you know, wrap up. Uh, so I'm going to give David a quick, quick question. Uh, if we can just keep it short, brief. Uh, just on 37C, uh, death benefits dispositions, what I've noticed recently in the industry with funds looking at inclined living annuities, it seems to me there are different interpretations in the industry whether 37C applies to in-fund living annuities or you can just use uh, nominated uh, beneficiaries and pay, pay them uh, directly. Uh, and actually my, my personal experience so far in the industry is a lot of uh, retired members, when you ask them which do they prefer, they, they tend to say no, they'd rather the money just goes directly to their beneficiary. Uh, no 37C, please. So maybe I'll ask Hetty, who's got the most experience, whether she thinks it would be a good idea to scrap 37C entirely and replace it with a nominated beneficiary uh, regulation. Uh, this is actually an issue that has been taken up by the RF Legal and Technical Committee because as you rightfully point out, if the annuity is inside the fund, because the benefit's still inside the fund, uh, 37C will apply. If it's an out-of-fund annuity, then it doesn't apply. And obviously that's not right. So we are taking this up with the FSB to make sure that whatever situation applies, it applies to both. Hopefully it will not apply, but, but I must say for one, I would have loved to not have a 37C. It would have been much easier if the member's nomination just applies like it does on a normal policy. But um, we've been battling with that for how many years now? I don't know, quite a few years. We, we still can't get it right. Okay, I think folks, that's uh, taking us to the end of the session. I think we've had a really good 
interactive session. Thank you so much for your participation. And a special thank you to Varesh, Martin, and Hetty for all the great information. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much.